0: Heavenly Father, thank you for what we just sang, that all we have is Christ, that through faith in him we have eternal life with you and we have forgiveness of our sins and we have a righteousness that we couldn't earn on our own. And we thank you that you have called us your own, that you've loved us first because we know that in our heart of hearts we fail to love you. And God, we pray now that as we talk about this issue that your word, your scriptures address, we ask that you would give us a spirit of openness, a spirit of gentleness, and that you would make us open to these things that we might be challenged, that we might be convicted, or we might be comforted in a certain way. And we confess that we can't conjure that up by ourselves, so we pray that you would do it by your spirit now. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So why are we speaking about homosexuality? Well, we were going through the book of Romans and last week, like I said, we mentioned it and I really had two options, okay? One option was we could continue on into Romans 2 and I really did seriously consider that uh, because I feel like homosexuality is addressed pretty clearly in Romans chapter 1 or what I could do is pause and we could dive deeper into the issue. Now, I chose to pause for several reasons. The first is, as we've already mentioned, this is a very pressing issue, all right? And as people who follow Jesus throughout history, they've faced many issues that have come up in their culture or actually even arisen inside the church, and they've had to meet that challenge and meet those pressures and meet those issues by digging deeper into the Bible to figure out what does God say exactly about this issue that we're encountering. And so in the third and fourth centuries, there was these controversies around the Trinity, right? Who is Jesus and who is the Holy Spirit and how does this one God manifest himself in three persons? How does that all relate to one another? And then in the 16th and 17th century, there were controversies and you know, issues facing. How is a person saved? Is it by faith in Jesus alone and his work alone and all that he's done alone? Or do we contribute to it? And the, and the main consensus there was what we just sang. All we have is Christ. Only Jesus can save and only faith and trust in him can lead a person to eternal life and salvation. And now I'm convinced today... In our culture, in our time that God has placed us in, the 21st century, in the Western world, the biggest issue that we face, the one we need most clarity on, the one we need to dive deeper into, is the question of sexuality and gender. And so it's for that reason that we're going to be talking about that this morning. Nancy Piercy, who's an author and public intellectual, she wrote, the biggest barrier for even considering Christianity today is its moral standard especially its sexual moral framework. People no longer are asking, is Christianity true? Rather, she points out that the question is why Christians are so off base and so out of step with the morality of their surrounding culture. She says that's the biggest issue we face. So the reason we want to address this topic is because it's a pressing issue and one we need to shine light on to give a greater clarity about what God understands about homosexuality. The second thing is, is I want to speak to confusion. Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor and he's an author and he's written on topics about homosexuality, he's written and said, when you're talking about this subject, everybody is listening and you can't assume anything about the people that are there except for three things. And that's that people come from a different background, but they generally fall into these categories. The first is those who are convinced, those who are contentious, and those who are confused. And there are many in this room, I can guarantee this morning, that you're convinced, right? You understand what the Bible says about sexuality, about homosexuality. You understand maybe what's called the traditional view of marriage and the design of God for sex. Maybe that's you this morning. And I hope to address some of the questions and concerns that you have. But my hope for you that this, this morning is that you will be challenged to view homosexuality in a more clear light. And in actually a more biblical light. Because in my experience, and I struggle with this too, those who find themselves more convinced about what the Bible says about homosexuality tend to be those who also view themselves as superior to those who have homosexual tendencies or those who practice homosexuality. And so we can view our sins, our sins in kind of a less critical light than the sin of homosexuality. So when it comes to a Victoria's Secret catalog or a Victoria's Secret fashion show or sensual songs and sensual movies, we kind of view our sin on a sliding scale, right? So heterosexual lust is in the category on this scale of entertainment, Versus homosexual lust or homosexual desire or homosexual practice is a heinous, hideous sin that's shameful and can never be redeemed. I want to get rid of that sliding scale because it's not a biblical sliding scale. And I want us to see what the Bible says generally about sexual sin as well as what it says specifically about homosexuality, okay? The second group of people who might be here this morning are the contentious, right? And maybe you are already kind of simmering about this conversation or maybe you come with maybe a disdainful sort of heart toward this conversation and you're already certain in your mind that homosexual ought to be, homosexuality ought to be championed and you know, promoted and it's for that reason any counter-argument is dismissed out of hand. And so my hope for you this morning is that you're gonna consider the arguments that we look at in the Bible and that I present in an open posture with an open mind and a willingness to listen. I could be completely wrong, but if I'm wrong, I want it to be based on the arguments that are made and the looking at the Bible, not necessarily for the position I hold and for my character, even before you've heard the arguments. Because our, our culture forces us into one or two categories, right? You are either pro-homosexuality or you are homophobic. And now if you're here this morning and you're already kind of contentious and you can sense that in yourself... I would ask you, have you ever heard an argument around homosexuality that didn't fall into one of the two categories, either pro-homosexuality or homophobic? If you have not, I would challenge you and say you are probably not listening to arguments. Instead, what you're doing is attacking character. And what I want you to do is look at the arguments on the face of them this morning and don't demean the character of those who hold viewpoints that are different than you. There's a third group of people that are probably here or watching on our live stream, and those are people who are confused. And I really want those of you who are confused, I really want you to be the main audience this morning. I want this message to help you better be a follower of Jesus and clarify what the Bible teaches about this difficult topic, because it is a difficult topic. Some of you And I would wager to say all of you know someone who struggles with same-sex attraction or practices homosexuality. And because of that, you've probably heard arguments or seen arguments as to how homosexuality can be compatible with the Bible. But you're maybe even thinking in your mind, well, there's something just not quite right about that, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Or maybe some of you are kind of fearful that if you hold your view, you're going to be on the wrong side of history, or that you might get, you know, really attacked by people, even people that you love. I want to bring deep clarity on this topic this morning and clear up confusion for those of you who find yourself walking in here and are confused. This is my last caveat. This morning, I want to open a door, okay? Okay. I'm opening the door to what the Bible teaches about homosexuality. I do not pretend to know every single experience or every single question that you may have. If you have those questions and you would like to talk about them, then you can email me and you can call me. My my email address is daniel at deercreekchurch.com. And I would love to have that conversation with you but I am not going to be able to address every single question you might have. So for that reason, if you find yourself after this with questions or you find yourself upset for some reason, I'm opening the door and I want to have a conversation with you. Okay? So with all those caveats, all those disclaimers out, here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to ask three questions. The first question that we're going to ask is, what is God's design for sex and marriage? The first question, what is God's design for sex and marriage? The second question I want to ask this morning is what is God's view of homosexuality? What is God's view of homosexuality? And then our third question that we're going to ask this morning is what are the biggest questions that we face? What are the biggest questions that we face? And these questions are not going to be maybe necessarily the question you want answered, but the questions that people who try and make homosexuality and Christianity in the Bible compatible, what questions they are bringing that we need to be prepared for and have an answer for, okay? So that's where we're going this morning. That's our kind of trajectory. So let's start with that first question, what is God's design for sex and marriage? The best place to start for God's design for sex and marriage is in the book of Genesis, where sex and marriage appear for the very first time. And you got to think about when you're reading Genesis, right? Genesis 1 and 2, this creation story, is it it gives you kind of three views, okay? It gives you a panoramic view. You imagine on your iPhone, right? You get the panoramic view, and you get everything at a 360-degree view, and that's Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 2 narrows in a little bit, and it's just a normal setting on your camera. You're just taking a normal picture and getting a snapshot. And then you can also zoom in, And that'll give you a more clear picture on the details. So what we're going to do is we're going to start Genesis 1. I want to give you the general panoramic view from Genesis 1 on what the creation story is about. All right? So it begins like this, and many of you are probably familiar with this. God begins in the Genesis creation account by creating spheres. Okay? He creates spheres. The first spheres he makes are the spheres of light and darkness. That's on day one. That's Genesis chapter one, verse three. God separates and creates these spheres of light and darkness. Then on day two, this is Genesis chapter one, verse six. God creates a second sphere. He creates the spheres of seas below and the sky above. He has these two different spheres again. And then in Genesis chapter one, verse nine, this is day three now. God creates a third sphere. And that third sphere is land and sea. And he separates these spheres. And then, as the story unfolds into days four, five, and six, what God begins to do is he begins to unite and complement, that is, bring together complementary pairs that can fill the spheres. Okay, so on day one, remember, it was the spheres of light and darkness. And what does God complement light and darkness with? And fill with the sun, the moon, and the stars. Then... In day five, God complements the sea below and the sky above by bringing the complementary pairs of birds for the air and the fish in the deep. And then this is all leading to day six, when God on the land creates land animals and complements the land with land animals. But the crown of his creation is man and woman made in God's image. And then we read in Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, God, before he creates, says this, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion, that is, let them oversee creation, right? Dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, Verse 27 So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so we can see, right, in this day six of God making man in his own image, the purpose of creation, this panoramic view, right, is all of the creation story is pointing toward humankind created in God's image that is a complementary pair and made for unity with God. That God created Creatures in his own image so that they might complement, that is, have dominion and rule over in tandem with God over the creation, and have deep unity and relationship with him. That's the purpose of the creation account. And now this creation is about complementing and joining together. Think of shirts and pants, right? Michael Jordan, Scotty Pippins, Simon and Garfunkel. okay? Deep unity. Simon pursued his own career on his own, and then Michael Jordan did later. But the analogy holds, right? Complementary. So God brought together, he united all of creation. And so we too, as humankind made in God's image, were created for unity and complementarity with God. So I know the next question you're asking, the next question you're asking is what on earth does this have to do about marriage? Okay, so that's where we get the normal lens. And we just look at what God now says about marriage because Sex and marriage specifically, just like creation as a whole, is complementary. And it's about unity between man and woman, just as creation is about unity between God and humanity. So when we flip over to Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, we hear God say, after he's created Adam individually, notice what he says. It is not good that man should be alone. And the solution, I will make a helper fit, unified, complementary, for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creatures, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and all birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. None of creation could complement Adam, right? So what's God's solution? So, therefore, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he had made into the woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Just as woman was a reflection of man... So too, humankind is a reflection of the Creator. You see that? And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And there's a play on the words in the Hebrew here. Woman is ishah, man is ish. So she's the ishah to the ish, right? It's it's a word play to signal signal and uh, signify unity, complementarity, a fitness, Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So you see the two overlapping themes here, right? Panoramic view, unity with God and creation and his image bearers. Genesis chapter 2, normal lens, marriage is man and woman in unity, complementing one another in faithfulness to reflect the Creator. So do you see that? You see the overlapping themes? That's marriage. And with that, we can zoom in now and say, okay, so then why did God create sex? And we can look at the particulars here. Genesis 128 says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. That is, God created sex so that the earth would be filled with more image bearers of God who would live in union and complement with God and complementary relationship with God. So why did God give us sex? One of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons is for procreation. When man and woman come together, then they can actually procreate and create more image bearers. But the second reason that we see, and this is another reason, is for unity. Verse 24, remember, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast That word is the word, in the King James Version, it was cleave. That's almost better, right? But it's glue. It's like the the word for glue, to to stick to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So the two no longer are two, they're one. One flesh, one man, one woman, one flesh, like glue. And the funny thing about this, this creation story and this idea of sex, is it's actually corroborated by neurological science. This is a quotation from the neurologist, uh, Dr. Judith Reisman. Reisman says, quote, sex triggers the release of the hormones of oxytocin and vasopressin. These hormones help to lay the long-term memories for our brain cells. In effect, these are his, her words, by the way, in effect, they bind a person's memories to the person that he or she had sexual intercourse with she continues that when sex is outside of a monogamous relationship instead of forming a deep connection to a person our brain ends up binding itself it ends up binding itself to a sexual experience resulting in a bond toward an experience and objects rather, rather than the single person that a human was created for in a nutshell what she's saying is our brains Our neurology, our psychology, our physiologically built-up humanness was made to be one man with one woman for sexual intercourse. And when we deviate from that, the stickiness stops working. It's like a sticky pad, right? You take a sticky pad and you write a note to pick up milk, and you stick it on a surface, and it'll stick there. It'll probably stay there until, you know, the world ends. But then the second you take it off and put it on another surface, right, then it loses some of its stickiness until finally you've sticked it on to so many surfaces that the glue will kind of disintegrate and it'll no longer be able to stick properly. And that's what the creation account's telling us as well as secular neuropsychology. So back to our question, what is God's design for sex and marriage? Here it is. Here's here's the nutshell, right? God's design for sex and marriage is the faithful union of one man and one woman in a complementary pair for the purpose of procreation and unity to reflect God's relationship with humankind, God's relationship with his image bearers. So I love this quote from Nancy Piercy. She puts it perfectly our sexuality is a part of the created order that is declaring the glory of God. It possesses a language that is ultimately meant to proclaim God's own transcendent love and faithfulness. Marriage is meant to reflect God's cosmic love story. When we affirm this story, we affirm the goodness of creation and of God's great storyline. So do you see why this is important is that sex in itself is not bad. It is very, very underlined with capital letters, very good. And that's why when the Bible talks about sex, it actually talks about it like fire. Fire is good. Fire, when you have it in a fire pit, right? It can warm you up on a cold night. You can cook your hot dogs on it. It can even light your house if you need to. But when it's taken out of the fire pit, no longer is it meant for your good and for your blessing and for your flourishing. It actually now becomes a threat to you and it becomes destructive and harmful. And I know other people can attest to this because I can attest to it in personal testimony. I know when I tried sex out of established context and purpose of God's design that I really hurt people. That I actually almost lost some of my closest cherished friendships. And I can even still say today, honestly, that I'm still reaping the consequences of my sexual deviation from God's design. So we see that God's design for marriage and sex is good because God put it in this context of marriage for our good. And so the second question then becomes, what is God's view of homosexuality? We've seen his design. Now what's his view of homosexuality? Well, the first time that we see homosexuality mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 19. I'm not going to go ahead and read all of the narrative of Genesis 19, but I'll give you the cliff notes, okay? So, God, hearing about the sin of the city of Sodom, sends two angels down to the earth. They assume a human form of two males, and they enter into Sodom to hear if the wickedness that has reached God's sight is actually true. And as these two men go into the city, it's getting dark at night, and there's a guy there named Lot who's called Righteous. He's the uh, nephew of Abraham. And he sees these two men in the town square, and he says, Hey, This is not a great place for you to stay. It's getting dark. You have to come stay at my house. So he brings them to his house. And just as the sun goes down and night falls, they hear a knock at the door. And it's all the men and young men in Sodom. And they've come and they say, bring the men out that came into your house that we may know know them. Now, when the Bible uses that word to know them, it has two meanings. All right. One could be just to get to know them. Right. That you might know their background, that you might get to, you know, know what their preferences are, hear who their favorite sports teams are. But context is key, all right? Because in another context, to know somebody would be a euphemism for sex. We all know what a euphemism is, right? It's a good way to say a bad thing. So like when the Republican Party or Democratic Party give you a courtesy call at 5 o'clock when you're about to eat dinner. That's not a courtesy call. That's just annoying, right? They want your money. Or when you see a billboard that says certified pre owned car, that's used, okay? It's not as good as a new car. So, sex in the Bible could be known as knowing somebody, and that's what we see these men come to the door of Sodom, of Lot's house, and they want to know these male travelers. And now, many have noted, rightly, by the way, that when the Old Testament speaks about the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, the surrounding city, that when it mentions Sodom and Gomorrah, it doesn't mention or judge sexual sins. It does judge the issues of greed, opulence, oppression of the poor, all of which God finds extremely grievous and sinful and worthy of judgment. But in the New Testament, when this sin is spoken about by Jude, who's the brother of Jesus, he says, that just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, they serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So what Jude is saying is that is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah the story of homosexuality? Yes. But it is not only about homosexuality. It is about homosexuality, and that was judged according to Jude, because it was a deviation from God's natural design, right? They pursued unnatural relations, as uh, Jude called it. They pursued unnatural desire and sexual immorality. The next time that we see homosexuality arrive is picking up on this same thing of deviating from God's natural design, and that's in Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 20. In Leviticus chapter 18, what I want you to notice is that there's a progression going on. There's a progression of a deviation away from God's natural design. So Leviticus reads this. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness while she's in her menstrual uncleanness. And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie, that is the word bed, or lay sexually, right? You shall not lie, bed, with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. You shall not lie with any animal, or so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. So what we see here is the further we get away from God's design, the more destructive and the more disordered our sexual desires become. That when we walk away from God... And his purpose, his design, the more destructive our behaviors happen to be. Then in Leviticus chapter 20, If a man commits adultery with his wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed a perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male, that is beds with a male, has sex with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination that it shall surely be put to death, their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity, he and they shall be burned with fire, and there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, there shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal, they shall surely be put to death, their blood. Is upon them. So you see the point, right? Again, you move away from God's design, the more destructive the actions become. Because God's design and purpose for sex in the garden was one man and one woman in a committed, faithful, complementary relationship with one another. Not a relationship with close relatives, not a relationship with a wife of another man, or an animal, or two men, or two women. The design in God in Genesis is reflected again in Leviticus. In Genesis, it was said positively, this is what sex looks like. This is what marriage looks like. In Leviticus, it's said negatively, this is not what sex looks like. This is not what marriage looks like. And now, there are many people who object at this point, and many critical scholars have pointed out, or they've tried to make the claim, that what's being condemned here is not homosexuality as we know it, but instead, it's about cult prostitution. That men would be cult prostitutes in the shrines of pagan gods, and it would have been illicit to go and visit those cult prostitutes. But the context in no way suggests that what's being talked about here is cult prostitution. All the other sins mentioned in this context would be wrong regardless of cult prostitution. Adultery was not okay at all times and all places, not just when it was done in cult prostitution. Sex with an animal is the same thing. It wasn't just wrong in the context of cult prostitution. It was wrong always and at all times. So to read into this text that this is cult prostitution of man and man is to not do justice to the actual context... And it's to actually obscure what the real meaning is, which is this. The book of Leviticus is a book about holiness, that us as unholy people called to be God's followers are to pursue holy relations with our mind, with our bodies, with our sexuality, with our thoughts and all of our affections. And when we deviate from God's natural design, we're moving into unholiness that is apart from God instead of toward God who is holy and righteous and good. The second thing you need to notice about these passages is the seriousness with which it talks about sin and sexual sin. Okay, Leviticus 18.22 says that homosexuality is an abomination, and it says that word abomination arrives in the Old Testament over 50 times, all of which, almost exclusively, it's a reference to egregious moral sin. In Leviticus 20, homosexuality, according to the Old Covenant and all sexual immorality uh, mentioned there, received the penalty of death. Now key here, that is not to say we should punish people to death who commit sexual sins. That was for God's old covenant people who were a reflection of how God was supposed to illustrate his relationship of a holy people and an unholy God. Or sorry, (laughs) a holy God and an unholy people. Definitely don't want to make that mistake. And now here's the really hard part for us when we see the seriousness of sexual sin, is we have so, as a culture, separated sex from morality. We have not put sex in the category of right and wrong. Instead, what we've done is we put it into the category of preference and taste. So then sex and sexuality just become a matter of your personal choice and preference is not right. It's not wrong. It just ends up on somewhere on this spectrum of various tastes. But the Bible is clear that that spectrum needs to be done away with, and there are categories for right and wrong when it comes to how we use our body sexually. And this goes for other sins. And you know what? The Many people might even say, well, that's the Old Testament that talks about it in such serious terms. Well, this seriousness is actually reiterated in the New Testament. And in fact, the the temporal bodily death that was commanded in Leviticus, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, is actually pointing to a much deeper, spiritual and eternal death that awaits all of those people who are committed to walking in their own way without turning back to the holy God for forgiveness of their sins. So Paul, when he writes to the church in Corinth, puts it this way. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That is eternal life. He says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul is saying that our sin has serious consequences, including the sinful desires or the sinful actions even of drunkenness or, as he mentions, greediness, right? We want to separate money and morality. Paul says, no, no, no. Money and morality come together. You either rightfully steward money in a godly way or you unrightfully steward money in an ungodly and sinful way. Same thing with sexuality. So it's in a category of right and wrong with these eternal consequences. So these three texts make a central point. Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that when we distort God's purpose for sexuality and walk in our sexual sin, the result is that we're walking away from the holy God who loves us and created us, and we walk away from eternal fellowship and life with him, and we're walking into our own destruction. And that's why Paul felt so compelled to write this letter. Because, did you see how he started? Do not be deceived. Because we are tempted to be deceived about this, to separate things into amoral categories or unmoral categories. And the implication is that we'll see sexual immorality or idolatry or adultery as no big deal and we'll separate them from moral categories and we'll just say they're spectrums. And Now, at this point, you might be saying, okay, I agree that homosexuality, according to the Bible, is sinful, but doesn't everybody sin? So why why do we talk about homosexuality? After all, everybody's a sinner. And yes, everyone sins. And everyone needs to be washed and cleansed and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. But to say everyone sins, therefore it's not a big deal, is a big mistake. When my wife and I lived in Nashville, we went on vacation one time and we came home and we peeled back the covers for our bed and we got in and then all of a sudden we saw this little creature run through the middle of our bed. And so we stopped it and we put a cup over it and then we realized, oh, this is a big spider. And it just so happens this was a brown recluse spider, which are one of the most deadly spiders there is. And next thing you know, we're seeing them on our ceilings, we're seeing them in our sugar bowl, you know? And they're everywhere. And so, curious as to what we should do, we started asking our friends and saying, hey, we got these brown recluse spiders everywhere. And they're like, oh yeah, everybody in Tennessee has those. Everyone has brown recluse spiders. And just because everybody had brown recluse spiders, that gave us some comfort in knowing we're not the only ones. This is good. But that didn't stop us from treating the problem. That didn't stop us from calling a pest control to come out and actually take care of the problem. And friends, when we say that, well, everyone sins, and we say that it's no big deal because everyone sins, that we're talking that people who are pursuing homosexuality, it's okay for them, what we're really doing is we're saying the solution isn't important to sin. Friends, Jesus came to save sinners. And when we tell people their sin is not important, then what we're telling them is they do not not need to seek the one who saves sinners. We're telling them, your sin's okay and the solution doesn't apply to that. Friends, we do not diminish sin. We exalt the righteousness of Jesus. Remember Paul's thesis statement? The righteousness of God has been revealed. That means in Jesus we can find righteousness and forgiveness and life if we pursue Him with our lives and put faith in Him for our sexual healing and brokenness. Only He can give us sexual freedom, and sexual sanity. And so Romans chapter 1, this is, we talked about it last week, but this is a perfect summary statement of everything so far, and that's why I felt compelled to talk about it again. Paul, beginning in verse 24, and you remember before we read this, that this is the kind of chain of argument that Paul's had up to this point. He says we've exchanged three things. The first thing we do is in our sin, we exchange the truth about God for a lie, Then we exchange the true God for idols. And then we exchange natural relationships with men and women in marriage for unnatural ones in homosexual union. So this is the third exchange, and Paul says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves the due penalty for their error. So this is the clearest expression of homosexuality in all the Bible. What we see here is in this exchange what's been exchanged is the complementarity of man and woman is given over to incompatibility of man and man. The purpose of procreation is impossible because two women cannot procreate. And then notice the result of this exchange of exchanging God for idols, that idolatry, exchanging God, and homosexuality are closely aligned to one another. So in this reflection of homosexuality, it's not a reflection of humankind made in God's image, enjoying unity and fellowship with God. Instead, it's a reflection of humankind in rebellion against God and walking away from His image and likeness. So one of the best scholars in the New Testament put it this way. He said, Married love is a signpost, right? It's a sign that points to the faithfulness of the creator to the creation. The reason sexual immorality is so often coupled with idolatry, as it is here, right? Romans 1, is because such behavior points to different gods. The gods of blood and soil of race and power, the gods of our own making. It's a toxic mixture, and the Christian has no business getting involved with it. And now, many people who try and make Christianity and homosexuality compatible, right, and try and say that you can be simultaneously practicing homosexuality and a Christian... They often make objections to these texts in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, also a text in 1 Timothy, and a text here in Romans 1, and I need to put these objections before you and actually show you how they actually are portrayed in the Bible, because this is important. So some of these people will say that actually what's in view here is oppressive slave trade, that there would be sexual slaves that were being taken and then handed off for sexual exploitation. Others say that actually what Paul is condemning here is pederasty. Pederasty is the sin of an adult male having sexual relations with a, a young youth, male. So let me handle these in quick order, okay? First, Paul did not have in mind Romans' sexuality. Pederasty was something that was going on and there was oppressive slave trade during the time of Rome but when Paul's writing to the Roman church what he actually has in mind is God's design in Leviticus how do we know that because Paul actually made up the word that's in Romans chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6 it's the word arsenokoitai arsen is the greek translation of the hebrew word man Koitai is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word bed, man-bedding. Men lying in bed, having sex with other men. tai. He's referring back to Leviticus and the sexual deviation from God's created design that he gave us in Genesis. tai does not refer to an oppressive slave trade or any sort of pederasty. It affirms what Leviticus says about homosexuality. Secondly, pederasty was not in view here because Paul could have used the word for pederasty, which is pederastates. He could have used that word, but he didn't, specifically because that's not what he's referring to. Along with that, Paul mentions women and women alongside men and men. So, there wasn't an instance of women having sexual relations with younger women. That wasn't a thing. It was always a man-boy relationship. So, Paul is condemning lesbianism and homosexuality, not pederasty. And then finally, if Paul also had pederasty in mind, there is a diminutive form. I'm sorry, these are big words, but these are serious objections, right? There's a diminutive form, a smaller word you could think of for the word man. Paul could have said it is not okay for a man, arson, to lay with a pedos, boy, but he didn't. He said a man, arson, and a man, arson. Coiticing. Okay? So, Paul in Romans 1 gives us the most helpful conclusion that the Bible gives on what homosexuality uh, from God's design looks like. And he says this that homosexuality is a moral issue, it's a deviation from God's design for marriage and sex, and it needs to be forgiven, cleansed, and repented of through faith in Jesus. All right. Now, last question we're going to ask this morning. And I realize we're going long, but it's because we want to take time to really look at these things. And the question that we have to face now is, what are the biggest questions we we face? What are the biggest questions that are coming against this view of homosexuality? The first, that many claim this, and it's this, that the Bible hardly mentions homosexuality. Doesn't the Bible hardly mention homosexuality? And to answer that, the answer is yes. Yes. The Bible hardly mentions homosexuality. It only mentions it six times. Scholars debate whether or not that could be eight times, but explicitly six times. But we also know that this is a poor way of reasoning as to what is right and wrong, because the frequency of something being mentioned in the Bible doesn't give it the sense of the gravity that God views it in. So, for instance, God does not talk about, in the Bible, child abuse, at least not often. He doesn't talk about racism. He doesn't talk about sexism. Right? These things aren't explicit things mentioned in the Bible, yet we know that they're egregious sins before God. So frequency of sin does not signify the gravity of the sin in the Bible. And that's because the Bible makes this emphasis on the whole of Scripture. Paul, when he was writing to one of his closest friends, his name was Timothy, he said, All of Scripture is God breathed and profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness. So, what he's saying is, all of the Bible, that would have meant the Old Testament for him, all of the Bible is applicable to us. You cannot take out individual pieces that you don't conform with. It's a lot like the Bible is a Persian rug. In a Persian rug, right, one thread is connected to every single other thread in the rug. So when you pull out one thread, it distorts and twists and damages the entire thing. So we can no more take out six individual verses just because they're only mentioned infrequently. We can't pull out those six verses any more than we can pull out six threads from a Persian rug. And by the way, there are stern warnings for taking away from and adding to God's word. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 4. After Moses has given a list of commands from God, he was told to remind them this, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. This command is actually reiterated, by the way, in the last chapter of the Bible in Revelation 22. So why would God give us this command? Well, because God knows our hearts. That in our hearts, we often want to jettison parts of the Bible that we find uncomfortable specifically around sexuality. But we also have this temptation in our hearts to add things to the Bible that aren't actually there. So we want to jettison what it views about sexuality when it comes to us, but then add things when it comes to homosexuality and the sins of those people. right? So homosexuality then becomes the worst sin imaginable. But that's not the case. But the problem with both of these approaches of taking away and adding to are the same. What we're doing, when you take away something from the Bible, you're calling something that God calls bad and putting it into the category of good. When you add to the Bible, you're taking things that God calls good and you're making them bad. We see this with alcohol all the time. The Bible's teaching on alcohol is that drunkenness is a sin. Some people take that to the next step and say, well, then we're going to get rid of all alcohol. All alcohol is sinful. We're never going to have alcohol. Do you have alcohol? Get rid of your alcohol. But that's calling something God calls good, alcohol, bad, sin. The problem's the same. Martin Luther puts it this way. Martin Luther was a reformer in the 16th century. He was a really profound thinker and a prolific author. He said, when we read the Bible... In our natural state, we're kind of like a drunk person riding on the horse. We'll fall off on one side, and then we'll get back up, and we'll fall off on the other side. We want to be right on the horse. Right on what the Bible says about homosexuality. Right on what the Bible says about sexual immorality. And when the Bible does talk about homosexuality, it does condemn it. And in fact, there's major consensus, even when you look at people who are, quote, gay Christian scholars... People who are practicing homosexuals but have given their lives devoted to the study of the Bible. One's name is Pim Pronk. Pim Pronk is a Dutch gay scholar. He says, quote, Many Christians are eager to see homosexuality supported by the Bible, but in this case, the support is lacking. Wherever homosexual intercourse is mentioned in Scripture, it is condemned. Dan Via, who's another scholar, he says, I am in substantial agreement. With those who hold the traditional view that the biblical texts that deal specifically with homosexual practice condemn it unconditionally. So the Bible does condemn homosexuality, but it is not the most egregious sin. But note this that the frequency that a Bible that something is mentioned does not signify its gravity, the gravity with which God talks about it. And that leads naturally to the next common question, which is very common. This one's a little bit more common than the first one. It's this: that aren't people born that way? Aren't people born that way? And the reality is, yes. Because we are all born that way. We are all born that way. Here's what I mean. Let me give you a quote. This is from Rosaria Butterfield. I encourage you to go look up her story after this. Rosaria Butterfield put it this way. She said, sin, biblically rendered, is both a crime And a disease, requiring both the law of God and His grace to apply for our help. Let me put that again. She said, sin, biblically rendered, is both a crime, an action against God's law, and a disease, something that's within us, corrupting us. And there's a lot of confusion around this, right? Because many people make this distinction. They say there's a distinction between the desires I feel, the passions I have, the inclinations I have, and the attractions that I have, and the actual action on those attractions and desires and passions. So if I have homosexual feelings or have adulterous feelings, that itself isn't sinful. It's the action of committing homosexual acts that's sinful. But the Bible doesn't make that distinction. The Bible says sin is not just something outside of us that we do, but it's a disease within that corrupts. And this is known as theologians call this original sin. And what this means, in essence, is the biblical teaching that sin corrupts our nature. That what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden when they sinned against God has radical implications for us today. So that now we are born guilty before God because of Adam's sin and now corrupted in our nature because of Adam's sin. Because Adam and Eve sinned, we are now born not morally upright, but morally corrupt and sinful, inclined to all sin. And we read this, by the way, in all of the Bible. It is one of the central teachings of the Bible. Psalm 51, David is speaking here. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's saying, even before I was born, I was sinful, impure, before God, and in his sight, guilty. Paul, in Romans chapter 5, makes this connection back to Adam specifically. He says this, He said, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That is when Adam sinned, it's as if we sinned with him. We gave him our consent and he represents us. Now we're born guilty because of Adam's sin. Then verse 18, Paul continues, Therefore, as one trespass, that's Adam's, right, led to condemnation for all men. Now, because of his one trespass, we're all born condemned. Then verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now, we're all made sinners because of Adam's first sin. The Puritans used to have a phrase that would be catchy to get original sin. It was, in Adam's fall, sinned we all we all sinned in adam's first transgression. He was our representative and now we're considered guilty before god because of that. And now we're also born with this corrupt nature. Paul says this in roman or sorry, ephesians chapter 2. He's speaking to christians and he's saying this was your former life before you believed in jesus and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That is spiritually dead, incapable of goodness. In which you once walked. That's an action, right? Following the course of this world, that's an action. Following the prince of the power of the air, that's an action. The spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, that's an action among whom we all once lived, where? In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, right, born children of wrath like the rest of humankind. Meaning our sinful passions, our sinful mindset, our sinful desires all give way and spew out into sinful actions. But we have this corrupt nature That dwells within all of us. And that's why Paul can actually say in Romans 6, when he's writing about original sin and then the solution, he says, therefore, or or sorry, here it is. Therefore, as one trespass led to, where am I at? Here we go. Chapter 6, verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So there's this mindset that changes when you become a Christian. Your mind changes about these things, and you see this old sin nature living inside of you, and you say, that isn't me anymore. I belong to Jesus Christ. That's not my identity anymore. I belong to Jesus Christ. I don't want to obey those passions again. And then Peter reiterates the same thing. Peter doesn't say, hey, just avoid all sinful actions. He puts it this way, It says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. We have desires and passions that are morally corrupt because we're born guilty and sinful. That's original sin. How do you guys feel? (laughs) That's why Jesus can call lust adultery. That's why he can call angry thoughts murder. We're all born this way. In some people, it manifests itself in homosexual attraction. In some people, it's an unending lust for more money and a greediness and a power that won't stop until they finally reach the top. But we all have it. So let's be clear here. There is no such distinction in the Bible about gay versus straight. There is one straight and is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one without polluted sexuality. And we need to cast ourselves on him. We need to seek that he would wash us, that he would cleanse us, that he would forgive us by his life. So when we talk with people who struggle with homosexuality, maybe you're in here and you struggle with homosexuality or same-sex attraction, or you know somebody very close to you, the solution for homosexuality or same-sex attraction is not be straight, It is seek Jesus with your life and your whole being and put your faith and your trust in him. And he promises to make you a new creation. That doesn't mean you won't struggle with sin, right? Because Peter says, wage war. You're going to be waging war the rest of your life, like like everyone that's been awakened to the sin nature that lives inside of them. But the solution is not be straight. It is place your faith in Jesus. For forgiveness and cleansing. And Jesus is able to change. And I'm going to be really quick with these last two points. Okay, really quick. The second or third question people ask is, Jesus doesn't mention homosexuality. And yes, you'd be right in saying, Jesus does not specifically talk about homosexuality. That's right. But Mark chapter 7, verses 20 through 23, you can write that down and you you can study it. But here it is right here. Mark chapter 7. Jesus said, what comes out of a person, right, we just talked about this, what comes out of a person defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, that word's key, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. When Jesus used that term, sexual immorality, that's the Greek word porneia, it's a blanket term covering everything that does not fall within God's design for marriage sex. So it includes everything from pederasty to bestiality to pedophilia to homosexuality. So did Jesus ever talk about homosexuality specifically? No. But he didn't have to because he condemned everything under this category of sexual immorality. It's a blanket term when my kids are throwing a basketball in the house and I say, don't throw the ball in the house. But I come back the next day and they're throwing a tennis ball in the house. I say, guys, I told you not to throw the ball in the house. And they said, well, this is a tennis ball. Yesterday, it was a basketball. Well, I didn't have to condemn basketball, tennis ball, baseball, bocce ball, pool ball, whatever ball. It's because I said, don't throw the ball in the house. That covers all balls in all times and all places, all balls you can think of. And so Jesus is saying the same thing. Sexual immorality, I don't have to mention every deviant form or uh, sinful form of sexuality because he condemns it all in this one blanket statement. Lastly, this is the last question we have is, but aren't we supposed to love people? Aren't we supposed to love people? And there seems to be in this question that people have is that there's this big pitting of difference between loving somebody genuinely and overlooking the sin in their life. And so are we supposed to love people? I'm going to answer this very quickly. Yes. Yes. But in the Bible, there is a road. It's a two-lane road, okay? Love is one lane, and holiness is another lane. And they run along the same road, always, They never separate. They always run together. So when we say, I want to love a person, but we stop and put a roadblock between their holiness and our holiness, the road ceases to move. And that road that you think loves people is actually going in an opposite direction. So love and holiness never separate in the Bible. That's why we know this intuitively. That if we love somebody who has a drug addiction, we do not, for the sake of loving them, overlook their drug addiction. We want them to pursue faithfulness with the substances that they use and with their body. And holiness. And so, same thing with homosexuality, right? It's a two-lane road. And here's the key. This road meets people at different places. When we're talking with somebody that is genuinely struggling with same-sex attraction... Our conversation of love, truth, and holiness is going to take a different form than it would when that road meets somebody who's maybe an intellectual elite and a scoffer and calls Christians backward for their views of homosexuality. For the person who struggles with same-sex attraction, we want to be patient people, loving people, calling people to love Jesus and demonstrating the love of Jesus to them in appropriate ways, not to thump them over the head. And to the scoffer, to the person who's an intellectual elite who thinks that Christianity is backwards, to that, love and holiness need to be met with bold, courageous speaking of the truth in spite of the backlash you might receive. Maybe you're talking to a person who's confused. You have a gentle posture that welcomes questions, that allows for disagreement in hopes of and prayer for that person coming to be enlightened by the truth of the Bible as you walk patiently with them in it. So this road meets people in different places, and we need to have the wisdom and discernment of knowing where it should meet people. I do want you to have some soul searching, too, because if maybe I said, you know, we're supposed to love people, and you think that, well... I still don't want to bring up this issue of homosexuality. Friends, I want you to do some soul-searching because this is my temptation. I can confuse loving somebody with, in my own insecurity, wanting people to like me. I can confuse really loving somebody with just wanting them to like me. So I'll avoid topics, I'll avoid things that'll make a person like me instead of actually seeking what's good for them and what's best for them in love. So let me close on this. Rosaria Butterfield, I told you about her, but just a quick cliff notes about Rosaria is Rosaria Butterfield was a former lesbian who worked at Syracuse University who was a 10-year-track uh, woman who um, was working in the English department at Syracuse. She eventually met Jesus through the kindness and compassion of a local pastor, and she became a Christian. And over time, her sexuality began to change. And now you might be skeptical and say, well, that can't really happen. People can't go from gay to straight. But then I would challenge you to think, then how come you think people's sexuality can go from straight to gay? It has to go both ways. Anyway, Rosaria Butterfield placed her faith in Jesus. Eventually, God changed her. She still would say today she still has a lot of fighting urges toward homosexuality that she has to fight daily. But she became married And she gives speeches around the country talking about her story. Her story is the secret thoughts of an unlikely convert. And she said after she gave a speech one time, she was approached by a woman who was in her mid-60s, who at that point had been married for 20 years to a woman of the same sex. And she came up afterward and she said, I have been in this relationship for 20 years. I just heard what you said for the first time. I'm in agreement that the Bible speaks clearly about this and that I need to do something. But my question is, is why did nobody tell me this? Why did nobody tell me this? She said she'd been in churches before, but nobody told her. Friends, this is a hard issue. And we're going to have to use wisdom in how we approach it. And if you're struggling with same-sex attraction... We want to approach it with you. And we want to bear your burden and your hard fight of dying to sin and living to Jesus daily. But friends, let's be people who truly love in telling people that they can find forgiveness and wholeness and cleansing in the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you are the holy, righteous, and good God. And you are for us. You're a God who's for us. And you've proven that so much in sending your only son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, to cleanse us of our shame, our guilt, our weaknesses, our temptations, even our most corrupted and distorted desires. God, they're all in the light before you and you cleanse us from them through the blood of your son, Jesus. God, I pray for those who don't know that message clearly, that they would know it. I pray that they would seek Jesus. I pray for those of us in here this morning that need to be challenged, those who need to be convicted, those who need to be comforted, and I pray that you would do that by your spirit in their hearts. And as, I, as we continue to worship you now and come to this table that your son Jesus gave us, we pray help us give you glory and the honor that you deserve with our mouths and with our voices, the way you designed us to give praise and glory to you. And as we walk out of this place, that we would do so with our bodies in every way, including our sexuality. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.